Episode number 10, Kevin Cordy, Children Telling Stories, Giving Children a Voice. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Art of Storytelling with Children. I'm your host, Eric Wolf. I'm known by children around the world as Brother Wolf. I'm based out of Yellow Springs, Ohio. And I have right now with me on the phone one of the coolest people on the planet, Kevin Cordy. Uh, Kevin is a master um, of working with children and of coaching children. And in particular, he has been very successful at creating organizations that support the coaching of children. So let me tell you a little bit more about Kevin here. Nationally known professional storyteller and storyteller teacher Kevin Corey is correct. Um, <laughs> is the co-author with Judy Sima. Is that right, Sima? Sima. Of Ra- Judy Sima. Sima of Raising Voices Youth Storytelling Groups and Troops, and according to the National Storytelling Network, the first full-time high school storytelling teacher in the country. He has a master's degree in using storytelling as a primary means of educating students. Now that is cool. And he is currently a Ph.D. candidate in Dramatic Inquiry and Narrative Storytelling. Eee, doubly cool. And at Ohio State University, he's also led a successful award-winning youth storytelling troupe called The Voices of Illusion for 11 years and is the founder of, voice, of both Voices Across America Youth Storytelling Project and the special interest group now called YES, Youth Educators and Storytellers. See? Four times cool. Um, so... Kevin, I'm really so grateful and so glad that you have consented to come on the show and share uh, my favorite evening of the week, which is the evening I get to do this I, podcast. <laughs> I'm glad to be here, especially with the topic of children telling stories and giving children yeah. a voice. And I am um, particularly uh, obsessed with how to empower children and and how we as storytellers can get out of the chair or the stage, and we can let other people be on that stage and just share the stage with us. And so I'm really interested to hear from you how you create excitement about that in institutions and also how you um, create interest from with the kids and, and how you actually run the process. I just have so much. I could just go on and on. And I don't know how we're going to fit it into, into an hour, but <laughs> let's go ahead and try. Why don't you start... My traditional starting place on the show is that I ask um, my storyteller to talk about either uh, to share a story or to actually talk about a favorite story they have. Do you have a favorite story you like to talk about or that you well, like to like Looking at the know topic, about? I'm just going to tell you a situation that deals with children telling stories. I had a student, and his uh, let's call him Chris, and Chris was that student who sat in class and actually never sat in class because he never came to class. And uh, he was that student that a lot of teachers chose to ignore or avoid or kind of sit down and say, I'm glad he's not here because it would take so much away. And I remember one day that uh, I went up to him and I was teaching storytelling at the high school level, and I told a story called, When Did Polar Bears Learn to Dance? 
And here's this 16, 17-year-old listening to When Did Polar Bears Learn to Dance? And I was wondering, you know, uh, first of all, why he's there. But I learned a long time later, never wonder that. Just be thankful for the fact that they're there. And he came up to me afterwards, and, you know, he was uh, kind of, uh, well, he wasn't shy in any way. And he said, uh, Cordy, which was kind of, you know, they never called me Mr. sometimes. <laughs> and they said, Cordy, I'd like, to, I'd like to tell that story. Is that all right? And I thought, wow, polar bears dancing. Hmm. And this, this student had a, a sense of, uh, you know, not a lot of students went up to him. And I said, of course, Chris, go ahead and tell that story. And it took him a week. And he came to a Voices of Illusion meeting, which were students who dedicated themselves to learn the art of storytelling without any grades. I mean, we had storytelling classes, but these kids dedicated five to 20 hours a week. And Chris told that story, and I'll be honest, he told it better than I could. And then I thought about it, and it's about a story where a little child sees polar bears dancing and a father who can't. And I wondered why he was telling the story, and every time I saw his his father, his father was always yelling at him. He was a drummer, uh, and he was always away, and the time that they had together, and there's nothing wrong with drummers, um, it was always at higher decibels than than would be a conversation. And I think sometimes, actually I think every time a student hears a story, as one of my students said, Adam said, every story you tell has a little bit of you in it. And we too often don't allow kids to have a voice. And whether they're dancing with polar bears and seeing something that's not there but is, they all have reasons to come to the table of telling stories. And we have to set apart the idea that we have to teach them not as much as they can teach us. It's a reciprocal agreement, and I have to learn that um, in my storytelling. So you're talking about the sense of, of being a listener and also being a storyteller, of being someone who... A keen listener, and never to question why a student wants to tell a story, just celebrate and honor the fact that they do. Yes. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about your history and where you're coming from with storytelling so that people who, I mean, a lot of people have heard of you already, but many people listening to the podcast will have never heard of, you know, Kevin Cordy. So talk more about your experience as a storyteller and, and, and how you got into storytelling in the beginning and where that took you. And I think what's really important is that I learned to become a storyteller when I was 18 years old. And when I was 18 and actually boarding on 19, I had heard tapes of Joey O'Callaghan and Elizabeth Ellis and Jackie Torrance. And to be honest with you, all I had was tapes. And I fell in love with the art of oral narration. My mother and father from West Virginia, and I always say stories are born in West Virginia and everybody else borrows. <laughs> and I was raised in a storytelling family. But I started to realize that we could learn so much from stories. And I started listening to tapes and where my... Uh, Friends and colleagues, when I was in college and school, wanted to go out on a Friday night. I wanted to listen to stories, but I'd never heard a live storyteller. And I'll be honest with you, it was extremely frustrating try to learn the art from tapes and from cassettes and you know now CDs. Eventually found, by fumbling, the Cleveland, back then it was called Reps, and I think, I think it still is, uh, storytelling 
guild, and people who were two, three, four times older than I was shepherded me, mentored me, and started to show me the richness in storytelling. Students, um, I want you to go back 15 years ago. Well, hold, hold on one second. Hold, Kevin, hold on one second. Um, just so okay. we all know, there's a few people on the call now. So if you're in an environment where a dog is barking, if you press star six, your line will be muted. And if you ever want to talk, you can press star seven, and your line will be unmuted. So star six to mute your line and star seven to unmute your line. Go ahead. You were saying 15 years ago? Let's go 15 years ago, and it's hard to believe, but there were very few youth tellers on stage. There were very few, or at least on a national basis. Um, and honestly, people didn't believe that youth could share the same public stage. I mean, you know, it's kind of a sweeping thing, but I was there, so I can say it, I guess. Um, they were either apprehensive or didn't know the process of getting kids on stage, but now some of the top tellers are amazing at shepherding um, kids, and not only top tellers, teachers, librarians, uh, neighbors, uh, can give an hour to two hours. We're looking at a storytelling renaissance from 25 to 30 years ago with the National Storytelling Network and the International Storytelling Center, but now we're in the process of a youth storytelling revival. But they're answering that in different ways, whether they find it in rap or story slams, such as the moth in New York City, or they do storytelling with five, six, seven people on stage. I, I had 183 students on our stage at Telebration, the National Night of Storytelling. One of the things that we have to learn when working with kids is that kids set the direction for where they need to go. The younger they are, the more mentoring and guidance they're going to need. But as they become older and more experienced in the storytelling process, we need to relinquish and say, you know, I had story managers as opposed to stage managers, and they would work our bookings or our gigs. And often kids do not come to storytelling just to go tell at a festival or tell at a conference. They come because they have a story to tell, a story to share. I remember Myla who has Down syndrome, and if you know anything about Down syndrome, a lot of kids have trouble ending their stories. We had 40 students coming in, 20 to 40 students in a given week, listening to stories, and then they accept um, criticism if they like, if they if they want it. And honestly, in the guilds that I've been in, there are, uh, except for some, um, well, my students were more critical because they created a supportive environment for that criticism. Well, Myla couldn't end a story. And she would tell a story for 15 to 20 minutes and on her own realize that if she didn't end her stories quicker, she wouldn't hear all the other stories. And my students were patient enough in their listening skills to help her find that on her own. Where can you find that anywhere else? I've found in some of my residencies with, with high school students, especially more than the grade school level, but in the high school level with personal stories, that there really is that cathartic moment of just having realizing that this personal experience, this adventure, or or this crisis, this family life of whatever's happening to the teenager, just expressing it in this safe environment um, is amazing to behold. It's just 
I think that's the key word, that safe environment. The very first, uh, Judy and I in our book, Raising Voices, say that one of the biggest things that we need is a non-threatening environment to take risks. At the very beginning of the book, there's a pledge which says, I give myself permission to take risks. I give myself permission to make mistakes. I give myself permission to have fun. You'd be surprised at the students who really feel inhibited until they're given permission but as a whole group to engage in the storytelling process. But you're right. What's critical is that they have a safe environment upon which they can learn. Yeah, and part of that safety, too, is is our willingness to ask them if they want feedback and our willingness to accept Exactly, and realize that they're only suggestions. And you spend a great deal of time telling students that, uh, or sharing with students a collective uh, sense that just because they don't take your suggestion doesn't mean that it wasn't valuable. And you work it. I mean, I, I would tell parents, librarians, storytellers, teenagers to try to dedicate at least an hour a week or, an, uh, uh, you know, two hours a week or whatever to really help build the legacy of tomorrow, the future storytellers of America and the world, because where else are they going to find the stories? They're competing with television. They're competing with electronic media. And we, I say with every story we tell, there's a responsibility to it. In this world, it's the teenagers, it's the young people, it's the elementary students that are going to bring it forward. And so that's really critical if we're concerned about the storytelling tradition. And even if we're not, even if we think that storytelling is not important, oh, heresy, heresy, but even if we think that, it's important we understand that storytelling, good storytelling means effective marketing, which means effective business. Good storytelling means effective communication. It means effective organizations. It means uh, groups that function. It means, it means all these different aspects of life are so much better and are so much more effective. And these are things we want our children to know how to do. Well, the, and that builds into the whole idea that um, the storytellers who just want to tell stories is fine, but this is a professional art, or let's just say it's an art that requires practice and skill and technique. And uh, there's an educator named Vygotsky, or psychologist, social psychologist, who says the best learning that we can do is when we're learning together. And in situations such as play, we're quote unquote a head taller in our learning. Imagine how you learned how to tell stories. Nine chances out of ten, you didn't learn in isolation. You can only learn from a, so much from a tape. But when you sat and you started to ask and qua- uh, question and quander um, about the stories, you were able to grow exponentially in your storytelling environment. I, as the executive, former the executive director for the National Youth Storytelling Showcase, former National Youth Storytelling Olympics, um, there were uh, parents that worked with storytellers just by themselves, and they'd say, well, how can I help my student really understand? How can I help my kid understand story? And I say, find two or three other people. Jane Yolen, when she's writing and, and telling stories, she, she once said that she always meets people on a weekly basis and it grows. Uh, someone once told me that they they have, they can tell about a hundred stories, but they listen to thousands, and that's what makes them a better storyteller. And so the whole importance is that we don't see storytelling just as a festival work. We don't see it just as performance work. Let's look at storytelling as a means of educating our children. Let's look at a, a way that kids can educate themselves. Uh, 
there was one thing I was going to tell you that I'm, I've just kind of been using in the last three or four years, which is ensemble storytelling. I will literally go to a festival or a school, and I will work with 30 kids for an hour and a half, and then they will be part of my program with me as a mediating host storyteller, 27 other kids on stage feeling comfortable to share their story will help raise better recognition than most single storytellers can because now they're sharing with their own and their own is standing on stage. That's yeah, just one I, I mean, way I, that we can go. I like to do that in a week. I like to spend a whole week in a school, but you know, a lot of oh, well, can't afford me, that. Yeah, it's really hard to do it just in a day, and you're right, and that's the other thing. Educators, politicians, people who are making decisions on how to get people in schools, the best time for storytellers to work with kids is in over long periods of time. But yeah, we are also under this process of coming in for an hour or two hours, and we need to maximize our time. And sometimes our maybe a half hour, but then work with the kids so that when you leave, they're telling when you're gone. Yeah, and this summer, <laughs> I'm really excited. I'm in, I'm in cooperation with YSKP, the Yellow Springs um, Kids Playhouse, and we're going to do a three-hour workshop with the kids. I'm going to do a three-hour storytelling workshop, and then they're going to perform a pre-show for the local theater. It's a really exciting, like, um, you know, working together, theater and storytelling. Um, oh, Kevin, I, I want to draw you back again. We could go okay. off and off on it's this. It's hard to do sometimes. I know. I want to draw you back again to to your past and talking about some of the things you've done because because that experience is so valuable to everyone else in the movement. You know what I mean? Like you've had these successes, and we are talking. We sure. are going to keep, we are going to keep talking about how you actually do the work with kids. We're going to come back to that too. But if I could just sidetrack for one moment into um, some of these experiences of what you actually did. How did you create a national network of youth storytellers? How, what did you actually do to create that network, and how does that network function today? Well, first of all, I didn't do it by myself. There's a number of people. Actually, if you want to get something done, find six people to move you forward. And if you have those six people, the, the, it will grow. And you have to include kids in the voice. So what I did is in 1994, I had a student. I was teaching storytelling classes um, uh, in the context of literature and reading, and Jennifer Woolley came up to me from East Bakersfield High School and said, Mr. Cordy, you use stories so much. I said, yeah, well, I stopped apologizing them for a long time ago because they were, <laughs> Jennifer. She said, you don't understand. She said, I want a storytelling club after school. And I had known about Robert Rubenstein's um, uh, group, but uh, you know, I, I didn't know the first. And I said, Jennifer, I'm not sure how to do it, but I'm willing to do it. She said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. So we went to a dark, dank basement for uh, a half hour to tell ghost stories. There were four of us. You can never tell ghost stories in a half hour. So three hours later and another hour talking about children's stories and grandparent tales and people that they've missed, Jennifer Woolley stood up and said, next week's assignment will be. And they began to meet on a weekly basis, and four students became 30 students. And anyone that wants to work with storytelling, whether in the classroom or within club, don't worry about your numbers. Your numbers will grow if you're concerned about that. But if you're reaching five, that's very important. And if you're reaching 50, which you're going to need a lot more volunteers. Um, but soon we had the Kiwanis calling us. We had the Tehachapi Wind Fair. And people started calling and saying, wow, we're studying the Civil War. Could you create a storytelling program? I remember the first program. They said, could you build a 35-minute program based on the wind? 
I said, yeah, I had no idea how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And so I had non-readers going into the library reading folk tales and fairy tales about the wind and celebrating the fact that they had found one and that we could put our own spin, our own punch, our own vibrancy. And what's really important is that I never auditioned my kids. I believe that talent comes with time and that you know and I was a drama teacher and still am and I do auditions there and there is a place for them and I was a speech and debate coach but in storytelling everybody can have a voice so we need not silent it and if they're having trouble then you put them in with another person or another person it should be a, a showcase celebration of something that we enjoy so soon we were doing 40 uh, shows a year, and I um, actually was asked to go to a different high school, and that felt like it was moving, so we started a new Voices of Illusion program, and I became the first full-time high school storytelling teacher in the country, and I taught five to six storytelling classes, advanced storytelling, beginning storytelling, rap and read as oral literacy, um, and um, even a science fiction and fantasy class, and then we had Voices of Illusion too, and Jose Gonzalez, who was a severe stutterer, as much when he was in high school, but we, he went to the elementary school, and they're like, oh, I can't believe. And Jose said, uh, we should share what we're doing. And I said, well, how? And Michael Levin said, we should have a website. And I said, do you know how to do a website? And he said, no. And he said, but I am an insomniac. I don't sleep. And he had a website overnight. <laughs> and that website has had 12 million visitors since 1996. And... Um, it, just have to realize that you don't do it by yourself. You add as many people at very low cost. I mean, if you want to travel to another festival to help spark the professionalism and do bring in the professionals and bring in the grandparents. and uh, But as a result of that, I also realized that we needed educators to work with storytellers, and I started then what was called the Youth Storytelling Special Interest Group, which is now Youth Educators and Storytelling with Darlene Newman and Rachel Hedman. And you started with other people, too. I mean, it was not just... You as a group came together and started. Yes, yes, yes. I was the founder, and then we had co-chairs, and then we had delegated meetings. And you know, but what I want to really, you know, say is that as a learner, as someone building storytelling programs, whether you're building something for an elder hostel with kids, whether you're building something with schools and libraries, never stop learning. And always, when someone comes up to you and says, can I help, you have a list or a piece of paper that says, yes, I need this done. Don't say, I'll get back to you. Say, yes, yes, we definitely could use you to help transport kids. We could use you to help design some lessons. We could use you whatever. You know, bring in as many people as you can and build the community that storytelling builds by its own respect. But... um, uh, a little leadership goes a long way. <laughs> now, uh, you had talked with me earlier about the importance of membership, and I just wanted you to talk about that concept a little bit when you're talking about uh, mentorship. Creating. Yes, um, uh, at Bellingham, Washington, we put out a cry to uh, to have uh, mentorship across the programs uh, at every age, level, and ability, uh, adult and child. We're only as strong as the people who help us, to be honest. And I'm working with Michael McCarty right now. We're going to have a conference call. They can call NSN 800-525-4514 and just say that, or send them an email, uh, storynet.org, and um, tell them that they're interested in the mentorship program. We're both looking for mentors 
and we're looking for people to be mentored. And we're going to start an international campaign to really build, uh, and not just the two of us, NSN is involved, uh, and we're really looking to help uh, build mentors. But we need to do it at a local level, we need to do it at a regional level, and we need to do it at a national level. And right now, with like the J.J. Renault Grant, um, who, by the way, is a wonderful mentor, when she was alive, uh, she came to my school, uh, we need to build the legacy. And the only way that we can do that, whether we you know, go beyond our community or go beyond even our own road, is to mentor someone in the arts that we love. Uh, everything deserves mentorship. And if we're worried about storytelling lasting long after we're here, then it's because we helped the development of the art. Put aside any biases, put aside, and just realize that they'll come into their own, but they'll have your perspective and viewpoint and guidance to help them make decisions. And if they're interested in the mentorship program, please, they can contact me as well. Um, uh, but we are starting at grassroots and kind of moving up, and kids and adults need to be mentored. As someone emailed me recently and said, I'm a I want a mentor. That's just <laughs> as powerful as the 16-year-old, or actually the 12-year-old in Texas saying, I need some help. I've been to five libraries already. My mom said it was okay. I've told it these five libraries, but I don't know where to go next. So I was on the phone to Texas, and I was on the email and said, here are your guiding points. Here are the people that you can talk to, and they're comfortably working with these people now. Well, when you have that set up with a direct link, let me know, and I'll add that into the into the show notes, into the description where the audio plays, so that someone listening to this show that. can... And, and I will you know, put a boon here. Uh, Eric, what you're doing is mentoring through these phone calls. And you have some wonderful people that I hope that people take advantage of their expertise, talent, and, and ask questions. Cause it's oh, I am so excited. You have no idea. I just, I booked, um, um, I booked some amazing people uh, this last month. I just, I'm, I'm like high in the sky. People who I just thought would never give me the time of day were like, sure, I'd love to be on. Like Bobby well, Norfolk. That's the other thing. The story well, Bobby's amazing. I know. Uh, the storytelling community is warm and welcome, and rarely do I find it, uh, you know, where someone turns you away. And if they do, because they have a bigger, they have a schedule that they've already had. And some people, you know, you get that rare, you know, quality that says, oh, you know. But most of the storytelling is very welcoming, and I would encourage people to just build from each other. And our mentorship program is not at a cost. Um, I think that we make our bread and butter by going to regional festivals and conferences and schools, but when it comes to mentorship, we should give away so our art lives. Well, let, let's let's bring go back again to to coaching kids, and let's talk sure. about um, how you work with kids. Some of the, the 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 actual structure, how you actually work with the kids. So you're in a group, you've got a group together, um, and you pass this talking stick around. I mean, you just say, hey, who's going to go first? Um, well, actually, um, the very first thing that you have to realize is that each group of kids have their own nature and constitution, and the biggest things that you need to build at a storytelling club or in the classroom, two things, tradition and closure. Have a way to say, this is where we're going to go next because we've closed this up to go here. Tradition, start with a storytelling symbol. We started with the pledge. There's candlelight. It should be a special place for story. We had a sign-up list 
and I always had my students MC. We, uh, we even did ham MCs, and I'd say something like, our next storyteller has just come back from Oprah's show and toured with the Rockettes. They've been here for seven years. They're wonderful. Here they are, but only if they're comfortable with a hammed-up introduction, and I'd introduce the student. And then they would tell you at the beginning if they're ready for comments or feedback, and I loved it because kids are so honest. They come up and they say, I'm telling this story for me, and you just happen to be here. <laughs> and the one thing is, don't make it a business. Um, uh, my students, uh, thanks to Judy Seema, and uh, she has shown me the importance of having games. Our book, we have 100 games listed, and we're working on some others. Um, and then the first five or ten minutes are always talk time. Get to know them. Find out what's going on. People know my storytelling kids. The teachers would come up in within my school and say, I know a storytelling kid. They're not reserved. They continue to talk. And if they, need to be, if they want to be coached, they'll come to you. There are three types of coaching. There's one-on-one -on -one coaching. There's small group coaching. And there's also um, uh, coaching with just me. And students will tell you when they're ready. Don't force them. And it should always be seen as developable. And, you know, Doug Lipman is wonderful for coaching. Um, Marnie Gillard as well in Schenectady, New York. Uh, there are so many places. But often, sometimes, on, on this uh, program, you can bring in someone from the Kevin, Kevin, on yeah. this program, um, one of the first guests was Mary Hamilton. And she breaks Mary's down in wonderful. detail. Yeah, she breaks out in detail her WOW weekends and how to create a weekend event for storytelling to support each other and to support a coaching environment for storytellers. So she and I do something called, and, and I definitely want to go to those weekends because I've heard nothing but positive things about Mary's work, and she is a wonderful teller and, and, and a friend. And I do something called community coaching where I bring 12 people together, and we actually do it in our my house, and a voice but I mediate that voice, and we do it through a community effort. And we even videotape it sometimes. Uh, and it's just really powerful when everybody kind of, uh, well, everybody has the invitation to say something, and the person feels comfortable about it being said. Now, the thing with kids, the story is not as important as the kid. The kid being coached is the most important thing. If it's your favorite story, never introduce the story. It's say. I want you to learn this story. It's my absolute favorite because now the kid has to believe it's their favorite or they'll disappoint you. And what you want to do when you're coaching children is to realize that they are the most important. And you say, where do you think you need to work here? And you celebrate their success. And I'm a staunch advocate that praise is one of the highest motivators. Any other questions on coaching? <laughs> um, no. I mean, I, I did... I did I did offer a handout, which I believe you have on your website now, that's specifically on coaching. And anyone who knows me, um, email me any questions yeah. that they have. Ke Kevin sent me three pieces, three different possible postings. And I said, <laughs> oh, well, they're great. And I posted them all, which I've never done before. Now all the other future oh, guests. Oh, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> so um, on the website right now, there's three posts, one of which is called Coaching Youth Storytellers, which Kevin is describing. Um, and it's a pretty interesting um, post. Now, you also talk about f hearing the voice of the kids and and really listening to that voice. Is that what you're drifting into right now? You're talking about how we let the kids um, feel safe and how we get them to open up. I took Lacey Chaffin, 
to the National Storytelling Conference. We raised $14,000 to bring um, nine students, I believe, to fly from California to Kansas City. Lacey said, I was so nervous. I didn't know I was going to be with 600 professional storytellers or 500 or whatever. And when I got there, I just thought I'd be neglected. But everybody, Mr. Cordy, everybody came up to me and asked me questions about what I do and how I do it and how they can do it. I felt for the first time, she was a senior in high school, she said for the first time I had a voice. Storytelling with children. (laughs) Storytelling with children. Storytelling with children. From that experience and from many, many other experiences, I, I went to the principal of our high school and I said, you know, I went to one of my students named Maggie, and I said, I want you to, and she was an advanced student, whatever way you want to define that. I said, besides this class, I want you to go somewhere else, and in the next two weeks, bring you to think about what you think about the subject that you're talking about. Bring me a paper, bring me something, anything. She came in two weeks later, and she was frustrated, and she said, I either don't understand the question or I just can't do it. Nobody has asked me my opinion on any subject in the seven classes that I have in the last two weeks besides your class, Mr. Cordy. So I went to the principal, and she said, you know, the research supports it, and it's happening, and we're going to have a meeting on it. And we had a meeting on it, and we started thinking, while we're studying history, why are we just learning that history is cold, lifeless paper? It involves stories. Um, I had my students do a thing called American Choices, American Voices. After school, they put a 1,000 hours into retelling American history from a teenager's perspective, covering the issues of Orphan Train, Oregon Trail, the first landing on the moon where they had to ask a number of people through time travel, and we put it on cassette. And we've done seven CDs, actually. Um, And we, in schools... In, on the street, in the libraries, we have specific places where students are allowed to sit and be quiet. And if they're talking, they, they do it too loud. And how often do we ever ask a child, what is your story or what do you think? This is why we have the division between adult and kids. Storytelling is the great mediator or equalizer. It is what brings people together. And honestly, tonight, I give everybody on the on the podcast and everybody else a challenge. Stop what you're doing. Find a student that you know. Because if it's a complete stranger, it'll be a whole different situation. Sit down and say, listen, I'd, I'd love to know a story from you. But first, share one yourself. And say, does that... Does that remind you of any stories? And I just want to take a moment just to talk. And do it for five minutes or ten minutes and watch the richness that you feel. And if you want to do it from a teaching perspective, tell them a wonderful story, whether it's where William Howard Taft was so big he couldn't get out of the bathtub, which was my American history teacher story, or look at him and say, you know, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, this is what I was doing. Or tell them a wonderful story about your mother or your grandmother or whomever. And just celebrate the moment because there are few times. You want to know why MySpace is so popular? Uh, you didn't ask me, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> because it's the first time that kids have a voice in a medium that parents can't censor as quickly as they can say it. 
That's why blogs are so popular. That's why video interactive gaming is so popular. It is about connecting to their story. Never isolate them from your teaching. And I wanted to share with you at Ohio State University, I'm studying dramatic inquiry, which is the co-creative process of using 20 students to create a story together. For me, in the 18 years as a professional storyteller and a high school teacher for 15 years, I have never seen something more powerful than what's called dramatic inquiry or mantle of the expert. I think it's the next level in storytelling, which comes back to always never stop learning. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Well, we'll talk about that then. I mean, just give us a little teaser here. Tell us what about how does this process work? (laughs) Well, I'll just tell you recently I was with four blind students, one who has cerebral palsy, and we were uh, we asked them what they're most interested in, and on a period of four weeks, they wanted to go to Mars. So we literally made scale. They literally made scale drawings using brailers to talk to um, people from Mars. And we were in and out of the imaginary and real world to the point that we were finding blue and red spiders. And we were using a philosophy called yes and. Whatever they gave us, we worked with. And and we ended up having a debate with Senator John Glenn. He's a wonderful man. But we we told the the students who were astronauts that they were were traitors to the country because they wanted to bring uh, somebody from a different country on our spaceship well, because we induced conflict that they they saw, and they were really worried. This these this students, the students were worried about their wives at home or their girlfriend or going to jail, and all this was in the safe imaginary world. To the point, now uh, one, two of the students who were blind, we were told that when they were home, that they just sit in their room and everybody ignores them. And here. They were fighting blue spiders. They were fighting red spiders. They were co-creating the story. They made this beautiful comic book in Braille and in English for me with pictures. And I forgot to mention these were second graders. Huh. And uh, I yeah, that, that totally so... changes the whole story, too. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot. I don't believe a word of it. Uh, to be honest with you, I did forget. Uh, and, and they – I am man. learning – through the guidance of Dr. Brian Edmondson, who wrote a book called Imagining to Learn. Okay, wait, I'm going to write that down. I hope that everyone oh, listening is writing that down. Imagine Imagining to Learn. To learn. Um, I am learning how to use story or narrative in a dramatic way to ask authentic conversations, questions upon which children and myself don't have answers already. Now, a minute and, ago, Now, a minute ago, you talked about this 20-person storytelling thing. Is this what you're talking about right now? No, that's ensemble storytelling. Okay, that's when you, I... Actually, just they all like build from each other. Ensemble storytelling is something that I, I believe I, I coined, but it's basically walking in, working with 20 students, and they share an integral part of my storytelling program beyond blowing a whistle or raising a bell. We literally tell the story together through the co-creative process. Yes, it bounces from dramatic inquiry, but dramatic inquiry is not concerned with performance at all. There is no performance. It is in the creation of the story that the most learning is done. Wow, that's pretty confusing. good. <laughs> well, it was, but are you saying you can get 20 people on stage and they can perform? Yep, with me as a mediator. 
And That's this ranges of all ages. Oh, and, you know, we often include other adults. And uh, I have become, in the last 18 years, a very participatory, interactive storyteller, and I often, almost every show, use students on my stage. Same students that I meet that day. Now, of course, as you pointed out, if you have a longer time to work with these students, you will have more, you will have a better resonance. But interactive storytelling with the kids is, 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 is wonderful. And as storytellers, we, can, we need to continue to challenge and test ourselves. As parents, we need to continue and challenge and test ourselves as, as anyone interested in the narrative process. Okay, so you got these 20 kids. I'm, I'm just really interested in this. <laughs> You're still trying to get there, huh? <laughs> okay, All right. so what, how do you run this? How do you do? do, you, do you, I mean, if, if they're on stage, the 20 kids, are you just, um, are all the roles assigned? Do they know where their part stops? Are they sort of. different characters? Um, Is it like actually? Remember in the pledge I said, I give you permission to make mistakes. I give permission to take risks. We do an improvisational-based story, but for an hour we work with the same line of the story. So we all know where it's going. How we get there, there are defined roles that they've worked on, but anybody could take those parts. Um, But in addition to that, uh, it's truly an interactive experience that has a, a, I used to say spontaneity as opposed to spontaneous, uh, quality of it. Honestly, I believe the more spontaneous and authentic, you mentioned Bobby Norfolk, he's wonderful at spontaneity uh, or spontaneous reaction. Uh, and Ed Stivender, definitely. Uh, the more involved you can be on the audi- with the audience, the better the quality of the story. But when you bring kids on the stage, it adds a new dimension if you know how to be a good mediator of that story. You always put them in stories that it's safe to make mistakes. It's safe to take risks. And that's where the learning comes in. So I will take a story, for example, uh, the turtle that cracks a shell, and we will turn it into an extreme interactive quality. And honestly, the people sitting down are also interacting. You're just going to have to come there. I can see it. Yeah, I think so. So I want to give the people who are participating in this call by listening a chance to ask a question of you if they wish. Um, If you're on mute, and I see that someone is, um, press star 7 to go off mute. So you press star 7 to go off mute if you have a question, and you press star 6 to go on mute again if you're in a noisy environment. Um, So I just want to give them a chance to ask a question. Uh, Anyone? Give you five seconds to make up your mind. Star seven. (laughs) Uh, Well, I certainly have four questions for you. Feel free to chime in if you do have a question. Um, One of the things that that I'm really interested in is in terms of you're working with kids, you're coaching kids, and I've done this many times, and they tell a story, and it's an extremely emotional story. I mean, it's like something that I would think is – that I would expect – in a good therapist's office, you know, it's laid out there in this public setting. Um, what is your what is your reaction to that when that happens? What do you do? Well, first of all, define that public setting. Is it you and the kid, or in the classroom, or it's in a classroom setting? I'm assuming you've only been there 45 minutes, so it's not like a it's not like a group you've been in day after day where you've built up some real trust issues. It's you know, here's somebody with a story to tell, and they just haven't haven't had the opportunity, and here they have the opportunity, so they take it. And you've been there a total of 45 well, I think minutes. It comes, back to, it comes back to students not having a voice 
and this is one of the few opportunities they can seize the moment, even though it's very uncomfortable. It's something that they need to say and, and do, and you need to honor the fact that it's being told. Are you a therapist? No. Are you a listener, an active, genuine listener, and someone that will allow the other uh, the students to feel safe in saying this without ridicule or humiliation that you set up beforehand? Yes, you create all the environment that you can where that student... Students want to know two things. To be honest with you, adults want to know two things when someone new comes into the, to the room. Number one, will I be embarrassed in any way? Yeah. And number two, does this person have something to offer me? And if you don't work with one, you'll never get to two. And the way that you do that is you be honest and you listen and you provide a safe place. And if the students are, well, there's that awkward silence because of the nature and the gravity of the story, you, again, this is where the mediation comes in, you need to decide what is the best and appropriate action. Do I significantly point out this story? Do I mirror the story by telling something and, and deflect it to go to my experience? Do I look over and the calm silence is enough to talk about? Do I look over to the students and say, Stories take us on incredible journeys. We've just been on one. Let's take a moment of silence and stay there and then go to the next place. You need to decide as the storyteller and the mediator for all those students learning what is the most appropriate action. And then after, you can talk to that student one-on-one -on -one and ask them how they feel. Are they comfortable? Do they need to, would they like to tell you more? Um, and if it is a story that is so sensitive that you feel like there's a harm issue, then there's a responsibility to, to, to take care of that, both legally and personally and socially. But the biggest thing is the non-threatening environment so that you have something to offer. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think so, in a big way. Uh, one of the issues that comes up, too, is the issue of of telling, of passing on a story um, and this is more in a group where you have a small group of tellers who are coming back week after week, and somebody tells a personal story, and then there's like this feeling in the group, well, do I tell other people about it? Do I keep it in the group? What do I do with this story? How do I treat this thing? And how do I hold that? How do you talk about, how do you talk about that with kids? You have a group of storytellers who've been meeting for a couple weeks, months, sure. years, um, and somebody in the group tells a story that's very personal. They tell they tell a story about uh, how their sister died, or how their mother left their father, um, and there's some element of the story that's embarrassing, and sure. there's this fear in the group. There may be a fear in the group, or um, there may be somebody in the group who likes to repeat the stories they've heard in the group. You know, mm -hmm. and I was just wondering how you, as the adult in the room, how you talk about privacy without being the adult authority figure who shuts down the communication. You know, how do well, you deal Look at the situation, and what have you done beforehand to set up a situation where that student can say their story and realize that when they walk out of the room, it's not going to be a story that comes back and haunts them or personally affects them because someone's going to be talking about it. Can you control that? Absolutely not always, but you can condition the environment so it doesn't happen very often. And when it does, you, you need to take care of it. But if a student personally tells about when a, when a sister... When their sister died, honestly, I mean, when Judy Seema were asked to write our book, uh, we were asked, you know, what do you do with discipline? 
uh, when you have a problem in a storytelling club or group. And uh, Judy called me up and said, what discipline problem? <laughs> we, have some mi- we have some minor things. I mean, we you know, have people who don't show up on time or, or miss this, but uh, we, uh, and we both laughed at the same time. And honestly, there's a difference when you have built the trust and someone uh, shares that when their sister died, Honestly, I believe that most people will respect and value that. And you as the mediator will echo that. You'll say, what a powerful story. And we thank you that you were comfortable to share it, and this is as far as it goes. Um, if you you know have any questions or, you know, but you've already set up those parameters so that they don't have to ask that or volunteer that. Or, you know, I would say this is an example of a story that is so personal and I think this person owns that story. And if you were interested in telling something about it, it might not be right. And we always talk about uh, crediting the author and asking the author. Every time I'd have a guest come in, I'd say, "Well, that's their story. You need to, you know, you need to work over." We talk about copyright. We talk about, I mean, because you know we were traveling across the country, we couldn't just tell anyone's story. Um, sometimes we could. But when it's so personal, they're telling for them, and it's understood. And I equate that to our discipline problem. Judy and I, I mean, we had those situations, but we use those as a means of talking more with the students. We, we, our, our whole purpose was not to embarrass. And in fact, I had a student designated. I had a board, a student storytelling board, whose job is as soon as you walk in, your whole job was to make anybody walking in the door feel comfortable from a one-on-one basis. I would have my publicist, my story manager, I would have uh, my business manager, and they would walk over and say, you're new, come on over and sit with me. Or that was their job. And, and if they weren't comfortable doing that, they'd tell me, and we'd find a new job for them. That's pretty cool. Is there any other jobs in the groups that you've created over the years, any roles in storytelling clubs or groups that you um, created? Well, you know, again, every storytelling club and group has their own identity. We had publicist, business manager, story manager, which was like a stage manager, you can drink a water, making sure they're on time. Um, we had a, divi- a director of communications because I needed someone else to do publicity. <laughs> um, they created their own roles, um, membership coordinators. Um, oh, goodness, we had adults. Mentors, we had youth mentors. Um, where there was a need, we made one. I mean, where there was need, we answered it by giving someone a responsibility. Now, 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 what you, I, you have a storytelling club with seven-year-olds. You're not going to say you're going to run the show every week, <laughs> but you're not going to say you're not going to say to them after they have been working with you for so long. I would love for you to find. We're doing a whole program on the Underground Railroad. I'm going to make you in charge, the director, to find the resources that we can look at. A so, one of the things I hear you saying, Kevin, is I hear you saying is you stopped trying to do everything yourself, and you searched for ways to get other people to be involved. And I hear you saying oh. that a lot throughout this conversation. Is that you're saying that you're always listening for the opportunity to have someone else take over the role. And it's well, definitely it, something it's I see. Well, it's when you say take over. Um, take that responsibility so we can share it together. Um, uh, you know, if you're one of these people who have to check mark everything's done and you're doing everything, you're going to exhaust yourself pretty quickly. 
That doesn't mean that you're not checking that things are done and establishing those trusts. But why not delegate? Because the whole responsibility, how are they going to learn about the art if they don't search through folk tales and fairy tales? How are they going to learn about um, uh, going to, out to the Kiwanis Club if they've never been there? I mean, you know, I had I had a group call up and say, look, can you tell mother and daughter stories? And, you know, I looked at the daughters in my group and said, you know, can you guys search those out and find and we'll look at it. And they have an authoritative voice. If they didn't have a position, they still had an authoritative voice. We had a business meeting for 20 minutes, and then we had our storytelling meeting, and anybody was invited to that business meeting. And, the business, and, and honestly, we had more money raised than the ASB of the entire school. And I would go to a festival, and I'd say, um, student board, I'm going to a festival this week. I'd like to borrow $100 to build our library. Can I please? And they were in charge of saying yes or no. Hmm. That's power. If you want to hear a student's voice, empower them to talk. And give them a checkbook. Or to communicate in some way. <laughs> wow. Well, our time is fast approaching, so I want to give you the opportunity to kind of like flesh out whatever areas you think is important. We know something that comes to mind for me, though. I mean, just said that. Something that comes to mind for me is, is you might have a lot of experience about the life cycle of of groups and of storytelling clubs, and you might be able to look in terms of a long perspective of of the different stages of growth and and how things happen. I mean, I assume that the first year of the, the beginning meeting, a beginning meeting might be a good, might be scary stories. Might be a way to draw kids to that first meeting. At it's always free kids. pizza. Beginning meeting is always free pizza. That's oh, there's something I didn't know. You'll make collections. Uh, beginning, uh, well, I'm glad you asked that because at the very first meeting, even before the first meeting, invite a professional storyteller or a local storyteller or a national storyteller or whatever way you want to define that. I mean, I don't get too much bogged in titles, but someone who can tell a story well and have that person during the entire free program introduce the sign-up list for the storytelling group club or meeting or troop that you're going to have. And then a month later, always stock your student audience uh, or the people at the meeting. Have three or four students that you have already met with beforehand and say, I know you have a story. I want you to tell it at the first meeting so that you're not sitting around waiting for people to tell stories. Oh, that's good. Um, and, and always leave open time for students to tell stories. And uh, and questions, and also let them know that they're shaping this club. Now, I always say from the beginning meeting to the non-last meeting, a storytelling club should go as long as you want. Now, let me speak to the leadership. If students, since they don't have the time, and you're affording them the time, whether it's an hour a week or two hours a week, or, or, or you never tour and you just get together and tell stories, that's enough. Protect yourself with the time that you give so that you'll have more time to give. You don't have to be a madman like me doing 5 to 20 hours a week and then the weekends doing festivals and traveling. Simply say, I want to give four hours, and if my students get where they need to be, then maybe we'll increase the time. But protect yourself as well because you're important. You're the leader, and if you drain out and you get exhausted, then your storytelling club goes down and those kids need those voices so much that it's so important to us. That's good advice. You've solved both my questions. <laughs> what <laughs> well, advice to leave people with? What, what, what else should we 
should we let people know? Before I want to say that, like I said, you need to connect. Go to storynet.org. Um, I have a website, youthstorytelling.com, which will be merged with kevincordy.com, and I'm now working with a, a gateway portal there that will go into articles. It'll go into audio online interviews. Storyteller.net is also very resourceful, uh, the directory of storytellers. But here's the bottom line. If you really have some kids that you think are troubled or are advanced or whatever they are, but they need a place for their voice, don't worry about your qualifications. Don't worry if you've never told a story in your life. Well, worry about that a little bit. Tell them beforehand. But look at it and come to the meeting because if you don't give that hour or two hours, that hour never came. That storytelling club never grew, and therefore those students had yet one more place that they weren't heard. Mm-hmm. And we need to listen to more kids of all ages. We need to listen to ourselves as adults. We need to build in a community of story sharing as much as story performing, and we need to celebrate those moments that are so rich and so rare that you'll never find them on uh, an athletic field. I mean, you will. You'll find success, but a different type of success in storytelling. A storytelling club is for everyone. And if you want to start when you already have the skills, you need two things in this order, love for children and a love for stories. Call a first meeting. You want to buy the book? Go ahead. But if not, you can still work from, you know, email me if you want. I can send you some articles, and, and I spend four or five hours a week well, answering emails on Sunday. That, that comes back. I do not. <laughs> I I am a dyslexic person, and I do not spend four or five. If if your email does not relate, directly relate to, to my offers, I'm probably not going to respond to it. I apologize. The best way to reach me is... If you can send me an email, but if I can't try here, do this, do that. Um, Kevin, what do you have any offers that you'd like to make to people listening in the future of the podcast? People listening currently, um, well, an offer of an email. Uh, people can. Ask I would say make, yeah. Email me at uh, kcteller at sbcglobal.net, or you can find a contact page at kevincordy.com. Tell me what you're interested in in regards of telling to kids. I will send you some articles to help you. I've got a new one on telling and translation. I've got one that I think you just posted on celebrations. Um, I've got I've got uh, handouts that are not in the book um, that have storytelling games that have never been used, or well, it's not in the book, and I have been creating for the newest book that Judy and I are working on. And uh, you know, I want to be there to help or at least steer. That mm-hmm. sounds really cool. <laughs> Going back to our theme from the beginning, storytelling games. Oh, I just get so excited. Um, wow. Wow. So you are offering anyone who is interested in starting a storytelling club or coaching st- children with storytelling, if they want more information, they're welcome to email you. Um, and you also have a listserv. Is that correct? You have a list of... Uh, there's a youth storytelling listserv, and I have a newsletter. There's about 2,000 people, and it will, the first one will be released in uh, July. And you can email me things that you might want on the newsletter as well because it's in the process of being created. You, you can also and email... Is the newsletter physical or email? It's an email. So you so, can be on that news, newsletter list, and it will come out at least four times a year. And uh, you, if you go to kevincordy.com over the next couple months, 
It'll be highly interactive to find out more about youth storytelling. And as you know, Eric, like you, I also travel to schools and festivals and conferences and would love to uh, help people with ensemble storytelling, dramatic inquiry, and let's face it, telling stories with kids. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Well, I'd also like to make an offer to anyone who's interested listening online. I have in front of me a page called The Seven Benefits of Storytelling in Organizations and Classrooms. And it just describes the seven benefits. And I would offer to anyone hearing this message that if you sign up to my email alert list for this show, which is on the top left-hand side um, of the show uh, on the show website, if you sign up um, and you know sign up, and then after you're signed up, um, you then shoot me an email saying, "Hey, I signed up. Here's my email, and could you send me that list of the seven benefits of storytelling in organizations and classrooms?" It's a great list, just describing different reasons that storytelling works and why it's useful. And it's a really great thing to have if you are interested in making a um, an, an argument with your administration about why you should be spending money on storytelling and not the uh, the football field or the the tennis courts. Though those are worthwhile things too, but you know. Sometimes the tendency in the arts is to think that we're competing within the arts. And the reality is that in a school setting, we're usually not competing with the arts so much as we are competing with the sports program or, but or other aspects. But clubs have athletic people in them. I, I had uh, students who rearranged their football meetings so that they could make the storytelling. <laughs> so there's a place for everyone. Yeah, emotions went out, I'll tell you. I also want to just – I'm very excited today because I redid the website today. Um, so if you are somebody who checked the website out a while ago, and I got a I got a designer in, and we designed a really cool logo for the show, and it's kind of exciting, you know, a new stage of development. Um, and next week, next Tuesday, there's um, a, a show already recorded that's going to be posted for the podcasters. Um, and in two weeks, Rick Carson is coming on the show, and Rick and me are going to talk about Great. fear and scary stories because Rick's specialty is telling ghost stories and stories around the fire, and he's really good at it. And I'm just interested in the in talking with him about the philosophy of telling scary stories. And that, it's something I personally have struggled with a great deal in my life. I just feeling I, I started out storytelling, and I, would, I refuse to tell any scary stories of any kind. In the last four or five years, I started actually doing a lot of scary stories. And I'm just interested in, in talking about that philosophy. So I hope that if you listen to this, this this podcast that you will join us on the call and if it's months from now in July and August that you'll listen to that that cast as well. Um, Kevin, I really appreciate you coming on the call. Any last words of wisdom you want to pass on to the national storytelling movement? Sure, it should be an international storytelling movement, which it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I want to, com- and the way that it does is because uh, people like yourself educate others and invite other people through a dialogue of storytelling. So, I want to commend your efforts and encourage people to come to the podcast and give their voice and provide a voice because we can't hear kids' voices if we're not talking. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. 
The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening.